with me this morning and turn to Luke chapter number 19. You've been praying for us. I'm going to continue to pray for you, Randy. Randy Foster's grandparents raised him. They were like parents to him. His grandfather passed away last Saturday and his grandmother passed away last night. And so we're certainly praying for you. Both of them knew the Lord as their Savior, so they're at home in heaven, but uh, it doesn't, it takes away the sting, it doesn't take away the sorrow, uh, and so the pain right now is part of life and part of living, but we'll pray for you as well. It's also good to have Lauren back with us, just for a breath, just for a moment. Sometimes those that's grown up here move away, take jobs, and start their careers, when they come home to visit. We're still, we're getting to be a bigger church, but we're still a country church, right? To those big folks in the city. Uh, and I are one that grew up in the big city, and I love living here. But it's good to have you home, Lauren, for just a bit. Luke chapter number 19 is where we are. We're going to deal with this parable. Next week we have Matt Taylor, or Matt, Matt Herbster. I know Matt Taylor as well, but Matt Herbster will be with us. He'll be preaching for us then. And uh, we'll finish our principal parables on Sunday, September the 4th, with Luke chapter 20. Now, some of you that are astute will realize that in Luke chapter 21, there is a parable. That parable is a parable of the rebutting fig tree, and it is a wonderful par parable, but it really, in principle, applies to the coming kingdom of Christ. And so while we could preach on it, I'm going to exempt it. Yes, I'm leaving one out, but... In due time, at the right time, and especially when we get to prophecy again, I will preach on that parable. But two more to go. We pick up our reading this morning here in Luke chapter number 19 and verse number 11. The Bible says, and as they heard these things, he, the he here is Jesus, added and spake a parable. Because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. They thought it was now, in other words. Jesus said, therefore... <coughs> A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupied till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money or that is the pounds, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading or occupying themselves. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound has gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound has gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up, but thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And sayest unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury or with interest? Why didn't you just invest it in a bank then? Well, that's a wonderful statement from Jesus about banks, isn't it? <laughs> Let's continue. Verse 24. 
And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it unto him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which thou would not, or excuse me, which would not, that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Oh, an interesting parable that we will study today. Father, help us, I pray, as we come to the word of God. May we understand carefully the principles that you lay out here. May we understand not merely who you are in it, and it's important for us to know that, but what we are to do from this parable, what the principle is for us. Bless in this hour. I pray that you would remove distractions from our hearts and minds, that we be attentive to the Spirit's leading and teaching in this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The passage in Psalm that Edward read to begin this morning is perfect for today, for we will be looking at Christ, our King. Before we get to the King, however, we need to understand the context of this parable. It comes in the first with the setting of the first ten verses. What is found in the first ten verses of Luke 19? And the answer is Zacchaeus. Now, the junior church is back there, but are there any youngsters in here? Anybody under the age of 8th grade that would be willing to come up here and sing Zacchaeus with me? Anyone? Jenny's looking down the road at the hand boys, see if any of them will go. Anybody want to come up here and sing Zacchaeus? Alright, then the rest of you have to sing it with me. See, you should have told your kids to come up here and sing it. Now you get to sing it, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, please come down, for I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. Now in our house, we finish that song when we do devotions with bum bum. I don't know why we do that. It just seems fitting. That's the first ten verses. You're welcome. I didn't have to read them. You can and you should. They tell a wonderful story of the conversion of a man that was hated by both the rich and the poor. You think you don't have friends and that you're lower than a dog. Try being Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus was in it for his own gain, we know. But there's a wonderful truth in the story of Zacchaeus. His conversion is the setting of our parable this morning. This parable is given at the heels of his conversion. Jesus is on his way to the cross of Calvary. And while on his way there, he passes through the city of Jericho. This little tax collector climbs up into the sycamore tree... For the Lord, as we say, he wanted to see. There are three things that we should note before we dive into the message this morning about receiving salvation from the story of Zacchaeus. First, God personally calls each of us to salvation. Look at verse number five. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must abide at thy house. Jesus Wants to dwell 
with you. Amen. That's the heart of salvation. Jesus wants to make his abode in your life. Second, each of us is responsible for receiving or rejecting the salvation call just as Zacchaeus received the salvation call when it came to him. Verse number six. And he made haste and came down. And notice what it says. Received him joyfully. Friend, there's never been a time that a person hasn't trusted Jesus Christ that the result is not joy and satisfaction and peace and contentment. Now, we're going to see in our parable this morning that there can become a place in our life where we lose that joy and we forget that peace and contentment. But make no mistake, at the moment of salvation, if it's sincere, if it's genuine, when you trust Jesus as your Savior, you will do so joyfully. Amen. That's the second point. The third is this. Upon receiving salvation, each of us has a responsibility and an opportunity to manifest the inner change that that salvation has brought through our outward actions for Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 8. Zacchaeus stood. Now, what has happened? Jesus has come to his house. And those that saw this murmured, it says in verse 7. But Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And by the way, besides that, if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, which, by the way, he had likely done many times. As a tax collector, he worked on behalf of the Roman government, and as a Jew, he was a traitor to his people. He would abuse them. He would take advantage of them. And so we find that this man says, if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. He was going beyond what the law even required. This man received Jesus Christ, and his actions outwardly manifested what that inward change was like. It is in this third reality of the outward actions that should flow from inward change that the parable comes from Jesus. The Bible says in verse number 9, Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house. It's manifest, in other words. It's obvious to us all. Jesus already knew it. He's God. But he makes the statement for all to see to see and to know. For so much as he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. We cannot pass over verse number 10. We cannot miss it. It is the heart and purpose of all that Christ came to do in his incarnation. How important is Luke 19 and verse 10? And the answer is, everything that Jesus was about hinges upon that verse. It was his purpose. The verse is central to everything, and I do mean everything that Jesus was about. And it ought to be central to our lives in salvation as well. This parable teaches, then, three lives that mankind is to occupy or does occupy in light of the gospel's message. Perhaps we could say it this way. There's only one we ought to occupy, and it's the first one that we come to in the parable, and that is, in your notes, the faithful life. What kind of life should I have because I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Why is it that I would change from pleasing myself to desire to please God at all? Why would I make that change? And the answer is because there's a change. The answer is because I'm a different man. 
I'm a different woman. I'm a different boy. I'm a different girl because of my faith in Jesus Christ. It changes who I am at my very core. If we're not careful, we will link this parable with the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, and we would be foolish to do so. That parable in Matthew 25 teaches us about using the diverse gifts, talents, and abilities that God gives us for his glory. Here, everyone in this parable gets what? One talent. In that parable, one got ten, one got five, one got one. In other words, God, as he pours himself out into the believer's life in Matthew 25, as he manifests himself into their lives, those people go out with those gifts, those talents, and those abilities, and they are to steward them for God's glory as well. But here, everyone gets the same amount, one pound, one talent, one mina is the original word that is used here in the language. They get one. So this parable clearly does not talk about the differing gifts, talents, and abilities that we have as the body of Christ, as the people of God. It is talking about what everyone who receives Jesus Christ gets, and that is salvation or the gospel message. That's right. We'll prove this as we preach this morning, for this is the core of the principle. The pound represents the gospel itself. However different our skills, however different our abilities may be, we all have the same gospel truth that is imparted to us at the moment we ask Christ to save us from our sins. The most brilliant orator to the most, in the most prestigious and prominent pulpits in all of the world does not have a better gospel than the most timid, tongue-tied preacher in the back backwaters of a third world nation. Right. It's the same gospel. Amen. Right. That's what this principle, the parable, is going to teach us. The most competent Christian in here this morning is equal to the newest convert when it comes to the gospel message. The message of the gospel is the same. The picture here in Luke 19 is very clear then. This is not the several gifts that God gives to the Holy Spirit, but rather the one gift that everyone receives when they place their faith in Jesus Christ. He is passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. Do not lose sight of that, for it is the first city that Joshua came to. Jesus is on his way to victory at the cross of Calvary. Oh, it would not look like victory to his followers in the moment. But that death would produce a resurrection which brings new life. It was definitely victory. Amen. And so in this little town of Jericho, Jesus gives this parable. Zacchaeus is the launching point for the parable. A brand new convert is sharing not just his wealth, but his life for the gospel's sake, in verse number 8. The first life mentioned, then, is the life that you and I are to aspire to live. It is what we should strive for. It's what we should model and make our own. The faithful life, this is how we occupy ourselves until Jesus returns. This is what we want in these first verses. By the way, Paul comments wonderfully on this pound, this mina, this talent, that is spoken of here that each of us receives in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 the apostle speaks of this principal parable and says this for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek that is the rest of the world 
For therein, for therein that gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Old Testament and New Testament alike are found in Jesus Christ. As it is written, the just shall live by Here in our parable, Jesus gives two motivations that should inspire us to be faithful. The first, letter A, is this. The king is returning. The Bible says in verse 12, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Stop and grasp what that teaches in itself. It's simplicity. But in its sovereignty, Jesus Christ was the nobleman. He was going back to his father and presenting the blood sacrifice that he would make on Calvary. And as he would do so, he would there prepare a place for us. And he is coming again. It has not happened yet. But as the apostles pray, so do we. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Please understand this morning, when the king returns, he will not care if you're a pastor or a president. He will not care if you're a technician or a teacher. He will only care that in your daily life, you fully occupied yourself with the gospel and its spread. The king only cares about expanding his kingdom. That's all Jesus cares about. He has left that task to us to spread the gospel message. King Jesus did give the task, did not give the task, I should say, to only preachers, but to all believers. We find the ten are called, the ten are given the pound, and the ten are to occupy themselves with his gospel work until he comes. That is not Jesus saying all of you need to be pastors or missionaries. What he's saying is because you've received the gospel, you too ought to share the gospel with others. Verse 10 is the lead into this parable. Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You and I who have received that Son of Man into our lives by rebirth and new birth in Jesus Christ by way of the Holy Spirit, we too are to be fulfilling that same mission. These servants had the truth. No matter what they did, they were to present their lives before the King when he returns. So this morning, you will present your life of faith to Jesus Christ when he returns. Are you ready for that? Are you prepared to give an answer for how you've occupied yourself in the life that he has given you? His command is to occupy. We are to occupy our lives with the same occupation as Christ in verse number 10. Our pound given is the pound of the gospel. The truth of salvation and what the truth does to our way of living is what God cares about. If you've been saved, You've been saved to do a great many things for your king's honor and glory and for your heavenly gain. Yes, we'll see that in just a moment. Every time I read the parable, I'm amazed at the bluntness of Jesus' statement. God knows the hearts of mankind. He knows the effects of sin. And so he says in verse number 14, but his citizens, who are the citizens of the creator God? The answer is the whole of humanity. The citizens in this parable are the whole of humanity. And we find here that he says his citizens hated him. You get a little window into the mind and heart of God as to what he thought the moment that Adam chose to eat of that fruit in the garden. You say, well, I don't know that Adam really thought that. Listen, when you love yourself more than God, you are telling God, I don't love you at all. 
Christ. Jesus says that he entrusted the care of this world to those who inhabit it, its citizens. And the citizens said to themselves, I hate this guy. I don't want him to reign over me. I don't want him to have authority in my life. Listen, when you get saved and the gospel truth becomes a reality in your life, you are now putting him back on the throne of your life. If you're going to serve him and be faithful in it, he's going to be number one. If he's not, you don't understand the concept of a king at all. By the way, his statement is true. It is the heart of mankind. So while this sentiment is true, however, it does not change the reality of what the ruler of the country requires. You know, God doesn't necessarily care. The king doesn't care if everybody hates him. They're still his citizens. He's still in control. He's still the creator. We sometimes get caught up in all the hatred towards God that we see in our modern world. The love for ourselves that mankind espouses. Even as believers, we get caught up in it. We love us some us sometimes, and God says, no, that's not what I want from you. Be careful, friend, if that's how you think, because the king is coming again. That's what he warns us in this parable. We find the second motivation is not just that the king is returning, but letter B, the faithful are rewarded. In verses 15 through 19, we find the rewards that are handed out. Let me read a couple passages of scripture to kind of set the context for us. We're going to be talking in this subpoint about what we call the judgment seat of Christ. Some have called it the Bema seat. That is its original name. It is the idea of a rewarder's seat that is given to us. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are running a spiritual race, the book of Hebrews tells us. And when we finish this life, when we finish this race, there are rewards for those who run Lawfully, who run according to the word of God, who run faithfully and righteously before God. Listen to what some of the passages of scripture say about this coming rewarder's seat. First, first Corinthians 3 verses 9 through 15, for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, Paul is telling the church at Corinth. Ye are God's building according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed. Paul says, look, it doesn't matter who started the church. It doesn't matter who's pastoring the church. It matters what you're doing with the truth as a part of the church. Amen. That's what he's saying. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, notice the qualifications. Gold, silver, precious stone. Those are all three things that will stand the fiery judgment of God. Or the other three, three wood, hay, and stubble. So you have two categories with three elements each. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day, what day? The day of the Lord shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereon. By the way, what Paul is saying here is you've built upon the gospel message, the foundation of Jesus Christ. He says it will be revealed how you live your life. What you do in this life will be revealed in the life that is to come. You say, but I'm saved and I'm going to be in heaven. Everything's going to be happy. We'll talk about that in a moment. I don't think the earliest days for some in heaven will be the most joyous. Oh, you'll be in heaven and you'll be glad for that. 
but there's going to be quite a few tears. It isn't until a thousand and seven years after the rapture that all tears are wiped away in heaven. Pastor, I don't believe that. Go read your Bible. Tell me I'm wrong. It's not until Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 that God wipes away all tears. And that, 21, excuse me, verse 4, that is when that, that, that uh, new eternal state begins. He says, if any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire, the consuming eyes of Jesus. You want a wonderful picture of who Jesus Christ is and what that day will be like? Read Revelation chapter 1. When John the Apostle turns and sees the Savior, whom he leaned on his chest when he was here in his first incarnation, when he sees him, he sees his eyes as a flaming fire because God will know your work. Paul said this to the Romans in Romans 14 verses 11 and 12 for it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give an account, give account of himself to God. Those rewards and that account will take place in the book of Revelation. Chapter 4 and verse 4 says this. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. These are Old and New Testament saints pictured in the heads of the tribes. Pictured in the 12 apostles, but make no mistake, a picture of all of humanity with our faith in Jesus Christ. Down in verses 10 and 11, he continues and says this, the four and 20 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast, they take their rewards from this earth, cast their crowns before the throne saying, thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created when jesus in this parable gives us the picture of the faithful servant those who live their life faithfully from the gospel moment or the moment of trusting jesus christ as their savior if they use that pound well they will be rewarded amen the new testament clearly defines what will be on be beyond this life Jesus gives the first mention of this truth, and the first mention is always important, and it's found right here in Luke 19. Your life will be reviewed by Christ your King, and he will reward you for the works that you have done for him in this present life. Those rewards will manifest in various ways, and we will then finally offer them back to Christ, because after all, he's the one that's given us everything. Some struggle at the concept of a differentiation in heaven. Jesus doesn't. Be sure this morning that Jesus cares about how we engage. Be sure you understand that this morning. Jesus cares how you engage in growing his kingdom through gospel opportunities that come your way. That is the point for these faithful servants in the faithful life. It is not about who won more people to Jesus or who shared the gospel with more people. It is how we acted upon the opportunities God provided us. There is no difference in the commendation between that one who had one pound and turned it into sand and the one who was given one pound and turned it into five. There was no difference. They were both commended in the same fashion. 
Jesus shows us in the two faithful servants that he doesn't care about the amount we return to him. So long as we've been faithful in each opportunity, he has given to us to share the good news. Effectively, he's saying, are you willing to accomplish my purpose from verse number 10? What a joy that is to share in the work of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that's what you do when you share your faith with your family? When you live consistently your Christian life? God is not counting how many people you and I lead to the Lord. But he is watching how we exercise faith in him and are faithful to the task of sharing the gospel message. This parable is all about the king looking to reward people who love him and live out their lives from salvation that he has given to them. No one knows what eternity holds, even the pastor. I can't tell you, well, this is what the 15th day in heaven will be like. I don't know. I know it will be joy beyond our understanding this side of glory. But I also understand what Jesus is teaching us here is that there is a difference between those who enter the heavenly kingdom and those who inherit the heavenly kingdom. That's a New Testament principle if you study it with great care. My inheritance is with Christ, and Christ as our king will look at us and say, What did you do with the possession I gave you? Nothing, Lord. Why should I reward you? He loves us. It will still be in a merciful, compassionate, and gracious way. But those earliest moments in heaven, are you going to be standing there sheepishly rubbing your toe in the clouds of heaven? On those golden streets saying, you gave me 15, 30, 50, 70 years of life. After knowing Christ as my Savior. What did I do with them? This is the point of this parable. Jesus gives a glimpse here that there will be stewardship work even beyond this life. It is a wonderful thing to know that if we're faithful in this life, in the next life, we're not just sitting around in diapers with a heart, but we're doing stuff. He says to the one that was faithful, hey, I'm going to give you ten cities. Now, some of us want to know what those ten cities are, don't you? I can tell you this. We are not the Mormons. The Mormon faith would depart from us here, and they would tell us that we would become our own Jesuses and our own universes with our own galaxies. That is not at all what Jesus is teaching. None of us can become God. We can only be like him. So we'll never have that privilege. But in some sense, in eternity, he will give to us the ability to rule and to reign. Wow. What will that be like? I don't know. You tell me. I dare say there's a good number of faithful Christians in this church body who will have a great management responsibility, perhaps even greater than their pastor. Some of you are sitting here, oh, no, you've got to be the holiest guy in here. And I can tell you, sometimes I'm not. As we strive for the mastery, as Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 9, this is what we're striving for. So that we live faithfully in this life, that we can live a full, unimaginable existence in the life that is to come. It is interesting, and I want you to get this. In verse number 17, Jesus calls this life that we live a little thing. Whenever life overruns you, when life is swarming you under and you feel just swallowed up by it, just remember God's view of your vapor of a life that you walk on this earth, it's just a little thing. 
Well, it does feel little to me. Yeah, I know you're in the middle of it. But if you get a divine perspective from this parable, you will understand that it's just a brief moment in eternity. What is a hundred years in light of a billion, a trillion, or whatever number is higher than that? At our house, usually the arguments for our boys go, I have a million, I have a billion, I have a trillion, and somebody says Google, right? Apparently that's the highest number you can say. <laughs> the point is, Jesus says this life is very short. It's a very little thing. We make so much out of this life, and God says don't. Just be faithful to share your faith with others, and the next life will be greater than you could ever imagine. Again, I know that there are some that would say here, but heaven is the same for everyone. No, it isn't. It's grand and it's glorious. Do not misunderstand what the pastor is preaching this morning. Anyone that is there because of their faith in Jesus Christ will be very glad for what they're doing there. The psalmist said it this way. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. In other words, if you get to heaven and all you are is a doorkeeper, you will love it, I promise. No one will be bragging between each other. No one will be lamenting over what they have and don't have. There will be no sin there. But make no mistake, God is looking to reward. And if he's looking to reward, there must be differentiation. It's biblically consistent and it's logically consistent. Erwin Lutzer has written about 50 books. From Moody Bible Institute says this, speaking of heaven on many different subjects. He says this. Salvation is guaranteed to those who accept Christ by faith. Rewards are not. Entering heaven is one thing. Having a possession there is quite another. One, entering heaven, is the result of faith. The other, that is a possession there, is the reward for faith through obedience. Either some Christians will not get to rule with Christ or they will rule over lesser territory. If we think on the parable of the pounds here in Luke 19 he's referencing... We will keep in mind that one unfaithful servant had his talent taken from him and given to another. His salvation was not taken from him. His possession, his inheritance, his reward in heaven was taken from him. Because he passed up all of his opportunities to share his faith. Amen. To live the gospel life. <laughs> he finishes by saying, while others reigned over cities, this man did not. All that he could hope for was to be admitted into the kingdom. He could not inherit its most prized position. And you say, Pastor, what is that? I don't know. I wish I did. The Bible doesn't tell us what the most prized position is. But here's what we strive for, faithfulness. The clear principle behind this parable is that Christ the King is looking to reward faithful believers when he returns. The question that I would ask you this morning is what will your reward be like? Will you enter the kingdom so as by fire, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3? Or will you inherit the kingdom and rule with Christ? Great joy and satisfaction. The future eternal state is, not, is one that cannot be dogmatically defined in particulars. God has reserved that as a mystery for us. But we know that there will be rewards. And buddy, if there are rewards, it's worth living your life for them. Amen. We live our life to please Christ, and that is a glorious life to live. Amen. I heard this illustration once, and I think it's appropriate here. Henry Morrison, missionary to Africa, traveled back to the United States on the same boat as Teddy Roosevelt. When they arrived in New York Harbor, 
President Roosevelt was met with pomp and fanfare and revelry because he was the returning president. Celebrities and those who were in the know were everywhere around him, yet no one greeted Mr. and Mrs. Morrison as they came off the boat. Initially, Morrison conceded that he was hurt and wounded in his soul. It was a troublesome thought to him that no one cared that he was a missionary giving his life in Africa. Until Morrison said one night in prayer, God reminded him through his word that Henry only needed to wait for his revelry and reward in the life to come because he wasn't quite home. I thought, boy, that's a good way to say it. We are not living for the joys and satisfactions of just this life. If you are, you are of all men most miserable. The faithful life is how we believers should occupy ourselves. But sadly, in this parable, we do see another believer's life, and that is, number two, the fearful life. In verses 20 through 26, we find Jesus reveals to us the fearful life. It is a basic principle of the Christian life that wasted opportunity means loss of reward and possibly loss of privilege of service. So we find this fearful man, beginning in verse 20, is part of a sorry lot, letter A. He is part of a group that is just miserable. There's no joy in him at all. Have you ever met a Christian like that? Some of you are thinking, I brushed teeth with him this morning in the mirror. She was looking back at me. Some people in this Christian life hate the life they've been given. That's exactly what this second man is. This man can't lose his salvation, for none of us can lose our salvation. But we understand this man because some of us, at certain points in our own Christian walk, have been where he is. God, you hate me. He calls God an austere man. That means a hard, cruel man. You're an austere man. How many believers, when they go through trials and tribulations, when they go through the troubles that are in this life, will say about God, he just must not love me. Why would you think your troubles make God love you less? This recipient of salvation is motivated by loathsome fear of Jesus Christ rather than loving faith in him. This man is miserable, and you see it in the language that he uses to describe his master. Beginning in verse 20, another came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. In other words, I kept it just like you gave it to me. For I feared thee. Now he's austere. Man. You take what's not yours, he proceeds to say. Interestingly enough, in verse 22, those who live with such a thought towards Almighty God, God says, I'm going to judge you according to your own mouth. Your own heart. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaketh, Jesus says. And Jesus here says, I'm going to judge you by your own words and your own thoughts. Right. Jesus still loves this person. But he loves nothing about his actions. Yeah. Nothing about the life that he lived because he wasted, he squandered it. He did not use it for God's glory and others' good. You can see the influence of the world on this man. 
The citizens around him hated the king, and this man started to take that same mantra upon himself. The world was influencing this believer in Jesus Christ, this recipient of the gospel. This man was smart enough not to actually outright hate God, but he did perhaps even a worse thing. He misrepresents the king to the world around him. Christian, is that you this morning? He hides his faith. Lives his life and blames God for all the misery and sorrow that he must endure. This man accuses God, his king, of taking that which is not his. By the way, this man had a warped sense of thinking. It was never fed by the word of God. Everything is his. So for this man to make the claim that I did this and you took it, God says, everything is mine. You're just the manager of it. If you are a faithful believer, you understand this principle and realize in good stewardship that you are glad for the reaping that God will have because of your faithful spreading of the gospel message. I know people that say, I'll be in heaven because of a faithful witness of a dad or a mom or a grandma or a grandpa, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, and on the list can go. In truth, you will be in heaven because Jesus died and rose again for you, period. It doesn't mean that it wasn't important for someone to share that with you, but they were just being a faithful servant. If someone in your life shared the gospel with you and you accepted it, it is still God who did all the saving. This man sounds like the man who fails to add to his faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness charity from 2 Peter chapter 1. That man who does nothing with salvation throughout his whole life it, that is given to him is, has this said of him by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you, ye shall neither, neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, here's the pivot. He that lacketh these things. By the way, this person has faith. This person never added to their faith. This person is exactly the one in this parable this morning. Is blind and cannot see afar off. And hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. You ever met a Christian like that? No. <laughs> I mean, they give testimony of salvation, but man, they are a disaster. I used to be a person like that before God got a hold of my life. So yes, I can see and understand these kinds of people. All I can do now is hope that I live a gospel life as best I can so that someday I will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. This is a sad, miserable soul. Saved, but so confused and miserable towards God that he would disabuse himself of the salvation if he possibly could. I don't even want it. I just put it in a napkin. I'm giving it back to you. Can you imagine that kind of a person standing in heaven? I took it. I wrapped it in a cloth and saved it to give back to you, Jesus. Thanks for nothing is this man's mantra. The fearful life is sad, but letter B, it will suffer loss. The unfaithful servant was stripped of all power, privilege, and position, and was allowed to enter the kingdom so as by fire. The parable includes a picture of the coming judgment seat of Christ. As I said before, referencing the rewards for a faithful life, I do not know what our future ministry will, will be, 
But those who follow the path of this fearful, fear-mongering man concerning the character of Jesus Christ, even though Christ is his Savior, will not be given the cities that the faithful two servants were given. They will not be given the reign and rule that those others were given. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and saying, hey, I'll just be happy to be on the back row of heaven. And when we get to heaven, I will ask you, do you like your seats on the back row? Now, again, that is not to suggest that the rest of eternity you're going to be living in misery. You will be perfected. You will be sinless. And all things will be revealed. Those old things will be burned off like dross. And now you will be before your loving Savior. And you will be in a loving state. But you will be in a different position of ministry and service for eternity. And I don't even know what that looks like. You say, well, why are you preaching this message? Because Jesus gives this parable. And all he's telling us is that there is a life beyond this one. And if you're only living for this one, you're going to be miserable in that one. Yeah. Right. I cannot warn you any more clearly as your pastor. Stop living for only today. Take the pounds that you've been given and put it to good use. God himself knows how desperately our community and our country need you to do it. You see, the believer can live a faithful life or a fearful life, and their eternal state, eternal state excuse me, will be affected by the things that we do here and now. Jesus gives one more life that I must at least mention in passing as we close this morning, and that is the forsaken life, number three. In verses 14 and verse 27, we find two verses that should terrify any person that is here without Christ. And I hope none of us in this room fit this category. The forsaken life, letter A, has destructive hatred in verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. Who do you think you are, God? The hostility and hatred is for God's authority here, for Christ's position. This hatred is born straight from the heart of Lucifer, Satan himself. He would be like the Most High God, the prophet tells us. That was the mindset and lies that Lucifer believed. That was his sin of pride. God, you're not my God. I'm my own God. I'm my own boss. Make no mistake, that lie of hell permeates and penetrates every corner of our modern world. From the scientific community to the entertainment, music, gaming industry, even to our business world. There is no room for God and God's controlling reign in their lives. They hate every thought of him. The lie that the devil believes is the lie that drives the forsaken life. And it is everywhere in our present day. It is a determined hatred and hostility towards the truth that God is the creator and as such the sole ruler of the universe. By the way, just because the citizens hate God's rule and reign, it doesn't change the fact that he is still ruling and he is still reigning over this universe. It leads letter B to the fact that the forsaken life is damned to hell. You say, Pastor, you could have chosen a better word like damned. Listen, it's a Bible word. They are damned. John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus says that they are in condemnation. 
The world, you and I are born in iniquity. We come into this world already condemned in our sin. It's when we receive the gospel truth, when this pound is given to us, when we receive it by God's grace through the faith and believing and trusting in him, that we receive that reprieve from hell. But these citizens in verse 14, and especially in verse 27, they are not just doomed to hell. They are damned there by their own hatred of him. Verse 27. But those mine enemies, make no mistake, God has enemies. Oh, he loves those enemies. He sent his son to die for those enemies. Romans 5.8, but God commended his love toward us in it while we were yet sinners. You can read that to say, while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. It's interesting, in verse 27 it goes on, which would not that I should reign over them. Bring hither. This is not the judgment seat of Christ. This is now the great white throne judgment. If you go to Revelation chapter 20 and you get to the very end of that chapter, you will find this judgment is there. But the word that is very telling in this verse is this statement, and slay them before me. You know what that word slay means? It means slaughter utterly. Now I've been invited out to watch some chickens get slaughtered this week. Thank you, Ryan. They're slaughtering their feed birth. I've never seen that happen. I may never go again. <laughs> Justin and Jenny did theirs this last week. But I reckon when I watched that chicken get slaughtered and have its head cut off and feathers plucked inside of a, something apparently that looks like a washing machine, that bird will be utterly slaughtered. There isn't one of them when it's done that will get up and go, ah! and start running around. It's dead, 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 gone. <laughs> That's the sense of this word slay. This is God the creator who is standing at the end of known time in human history. The eternal state, the eighth dispensation is set to begin. And he says there, they are for slaughter. This is the loving God that you and I serve. This is the loving God that has commended that love, demonstrated and showed it at every possible turn. But they've now reached the point where there is no return. He says, bring them hither. By the way, I don't believe God here is going, hee, 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 I'm going to get them. I believe the heart of God itself will be broken because these are his special creation made in his image, whom he loved, whom he died for, who rejected him. Yes, there will be justice. Yes, there will be righteousness. Yes, his holiness will be on display. But that doesn't negate his love, just like his love never negates the other thing. Understand this morning that if you don't know Jesus Christ, this phrase means that Jesus, at some point, if you reject him throughout this life, says, I have to slaughter or slay you utterly. Come back in two weeks when we study the parable in Luke chapter 20. Jesus says that those who do not fall upon his grace will themselves be ground into powder. Anytime you get your touchy-feely, lovey-dovey church friends that say, oh, Jesus is just love. I always encourage you to read them some parables this week. I mean, just explain it to me if you can, because clearly you're smarter than this. God is love. He will not tolerate sin, and he cannot allow it into his presence.
This event in our parable happens at the end of all time, and it's called the great white throne judgment. Here's what the Bible records of that in Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. Listen, that is a loving God, but in full terror. The whole earth will flee away. Literally, the substance matter of this earth is what that verse is saying. Itself, the atomic level will not be able to stand in the full glorious presence of God. And mankind will be clawing at themselves to find a way to be redeemed then, and it will be too late. There was, no, there was no, found no place for them, no place in heaven for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, important and not important is how you can read that. Stand before God, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Just like heaven has rewards. Those in hell will have a measure of their works recorded and revealed against them. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is the slaughter, you could say. This is the slaying from our parable this morning. And whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Friend, God's love and mercy never cancel out his justice, holiness, and righteousness. Sin and sinners have no place in the kingdom of light, life, and love. They will be slain eternally in a place called the lake of fire. This is Bible truth. Those who reject King Jesus in this life will be forcibly barred from ever existing. Again. Stop and think about that. They will be cast eternally into the lake of fire, which is the second death, which is a death you do not come back from. Yeah. It's a terrifying thought. In closing, our parable teaches us that we are to be faithfully using our gospel life. In light of the forsaken life and what happens to them, why would you not be faithful? There are countless thousands that our church family know, family and friends, co-workers, loved ones, that don't know Jesus Christ. You are their only hope of salvation. Amen. The faithful life is motivated by the fact that the king will return. And when he does, he will reward his faithful servants. The fearful life creates a sorry lot who themselves will suffer loss for eternity. And we'll have many tears at that moment in Revelation 21 and verse 4 that will need to be wiped away. Friend, make no mistake, the forsaken life is one of destructive hatred, which is damned to an eternity separated from the life of the universe, God himself. And it's not a place we want. Father, help us this morning as we